That Printer of Udell's by Harold Bell Wright. Read by Amy Zuck on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. Chapter 18 What the Pocketbook Revealed. The summer passed, and again the catapult trees shed their broad leaves, while the prairie grasses took on the reddish brown of the early fall. Jim Whitley suddenly returned to Boyd City, and Dick met him in the post office. Not a word passed between them, but an hour later, a note was put in Jim's hand by a ragged bootblack. George, said Dick that afternoon as they were locking up, if you don't mind, I believe I'll sleep in my old bed at the office tonight. Udell looked at his helper in astonishment. What in the world? He began, then he stopped. I can't explain now, said Dick, but please let me have my way and say nothing to anyone, not even to Clara. Why, sure, old man, said the other heartily. Only I don't know why. He paused again, then in an anxious tone. Dickie, I know it's hard, and you've been putting up a great fight, but you're not going to let go now. No, no, it's not that old man. I'll explain someday. And something in his face assured his friend that whatever it was that prompted this strange request, Dick was still master of himself. Later that night, as Udell passed the office on his way home after spending the evening with Clara, he was astonished to see Jim Whitley entering the building. He stood watching for a moment. Then, fearing possible danger to Dick, he ran lightly up the stairs. But as he reached out to lay his hand on the door latch, he heard a key turning the lock and his friend's voice say, I thought you'd come. George paused, and then with a shrug of his shoulder and a queer smile on his rugged face, he turned and went softly down the street again. Dick and his visitor faced each other in the dimly lit office. Well, said Whitley with an oath, what do you want? I want you to take your hand out of your pocket first, flashed Dick. That gun won't help you anyway tonight and a heavy revolver in his own hand covered Whitley's heart. His request was granted instantly. Now walk into the other room, commanded Dick. They passed into the stockroom, which was well lit. The windows were covered with heavy paper. The long table was cleared and moved out from its place near the wall. Dick closed the door and pointed to the table. Lay your gun there. Be careful, as Whitley drew his revolver. Jim glanced once, the determined eyes, and steadily at the hand of his master, and sullenly obeyed. Now sit down. Crossing the room, Whitley seated himself in the chair indicated, which placed him in the full glare of the light. Dick took the other chair facing him, with the long table between them. Placing his weapon beside that of Whitley, Within easy reach of his hand, he rested his elbows on the table and looked long and steadily at the man before him. Jim was uneasy. Well, he said at last, when he could bear the silence no longer, I hope you like my looks. Your figure's somewhat heavier, but shaving off your beard has made you look some years younger, replied Dick dryly. The other started to his feet. Don't be uneasy, said Dick softly. Resting his hand on one of the revolvers. Keep your seat, please. 
I never wore a beard, said the other, as he dropped back in his chair. You're mistaken. Then how did you know the meaning of my note? And why did you answer it in person? Asked Dick. You should have sent the right man. Whitley saw that he had betrayed himself, but made one more effort. I came out of curiosity, he muttered. Dick laughed. A laugh that was not good to hear. I can easily satisfy you, he said. Permit me to tell you a little story. Dick began. The story commences in a little manufacturing time, town. A few miles from Liverpool, England, just three years ago. Today. Beneath the unwavering eyes of the man leaning on the table, Whitley's face grew ghastly and he writhed in his chair. An old man and his wife, with their two orphaned grandsons, lived in a little cottage on the outskirts of the town. The older of the boys was a strong man of twenty, and the other was a sickly lad of eight. The old people earned a slender income by cultivating small fruits. This was helped out by the wage of the older brother, who was a machinist in one of the big factories. They were quiet, an unpretentious little family, devout Christians, and very much attached to each other. One afternoon, a wealthy American, who was stopping at a large resort a few miles from the town, went for a drive along the road leading past their home. As his carriage was passing, the little boy, who was playing just outside the yard, unintentionally frightened the horses and they shied quickly. At the same moment, the American silk hat fell into the dust. The driver stopped the team and the frightened lad picked up the hat and ran with it towards the carriage, stammering an apology for what he had done. Instead of accepting the boy's excuse, the man, beside himself with anger and slightly under the influence of wine, sprang from the carriage and seized the lad, kicking him brutally. The grandfather, who was working in his garden, saw the incident and hurried as fast as he could to the rescue of the small boy. At the same time, the driver jumped from his seat to protect the child. Before they could reach the spot, the boy was lying bruised and senseless in the dust. The old man rushed at the American in rage, and the driver, fearing for the grandparents' safety, caught him by the arm and tried to separate them, saying, You look after the boy, let me settle with him. But the old man, who was deaf and could not understand, thought that the driver, also an American, was assisting his employer. In the struggle, the American suddenly drew a knife, and in spite of the driver's attempt to prevent it, struck twice at his feeble opponent, who fell back into the arms of his would-be protector just as the older boy rushed onto the scene. The American leaped into the carriage and snatched at the lines. The mechanic sprang after him, and he caught hold of the seat in his attempt to climb in. The knife flashed again, cutting a long gash in his arm and hand and severing the little finger. With the other hand, he caught the wrist of the American, but a heavy blow in the face knocked the mechanic beneath the wheels, and the horses dashed away down the road. The driver was bending over the old man, trying to staunch the flow of blood, when several workmen... Attracted by the cries of the helpless grandmother, who had witnessed the scene from the porch, came running up. He's one of them! He's one of them! cried the old lady. Ill my man while the other in him! The driver instantly saw the mistake she was making, and realizing his danger, he ran down the street and escaped as the workman car- carried the body of the old man into the house. Two days later, he read in a Liverpool paper the grandfather and the boy were both dead. 
and that the dying statement of the old man, the testimony of the grandmother and the boy, was that both of the strangers were equally guilty. How the wealthy American made his escape you know best. The driver shipped aboard a vessel bound for Australia and later made his way home. When Dick had finished his story, Whitley's face was drawn and haggard. He leaped to his feet, but Dick's revolver motioned him back. What fiend told you all this? He gasped hoarsely. Who are you? I'm the driver, replied Dick coolly. Whitley sank back into his chair. Then suddenly he broke into a harsh laugh. You're a crazy fool. Who would believe you? You have no proof. Wait a bit, replied Dick calmly. There's another chapter in my story. Less than a year after the incident, the invalid grandmother died and the young machinist was free to enter upon the great work of his life, the bringing to justice his brother's murderer, and as he believed, murderers. He could find no clue as to the identity of the obscure driver of the carriage, but with the wealthy American, it was different, and he succeeded at last in tracing him to his home in the city. Unfortunately, though, the long search had left the young mechanic without means, and he arrived in Board City in a penniless and starving condition the night of the great storm winter before last. You're familiar with the finding of his body. Again, Whitley sprang to his feet, and with an awful oath, exclaimed, How do you know this? Dick drew forth a long leather pocketbook, and opening it, took out a package of papers, which he laid on the table between the two revolvers. There's the story, written by his own hand, together with the testimony of his grandfather and grandmother, his own sworn statement, and all the evidence he had so carefully gathered. Whitley sprang forward, but before he could cross the room, both revolvers covered his breast. Stop, cried Dick. The voice was calm and steady, but was full of deadly menace. Whitley crouched like an animal at bay. The hands that held the weapons never trembled. The gray eyes that looked along the shiny barrels never wavered. Slowly he drew back. Name your price, he said suddenly. I'm a wealthy man. You've no money enough to buy, said Dick in a firm voice. Whitley slunk back in his chair. For God's sake, put those guns down and tell me what you want. I want to know where you left, Miss Goodrich, Dick replied. What if I refuse to tell, said Whitley. Dick laid a pair of handcuffs upon the table. A cunning gleam crept into Whitley's eye. You'll put them on yourselves at the same time. The evidence is just as strong against you. <laughs> if it were not, I would have turned you over to law long ago retorted Dick. But you fool, said Whitley, they'll hang you. I won't save you, and you'll answer to God for another murder, said Dick threateningly. Whitley answered defiantly, you wouldn't dare. I am innocent. You are the coward, accused Dick. Then Whitley gave up and told how he had met Amy in Jonesville had taken her east to Buffalo, where he had left her just before returning to Boyd City. 
did you marry her? Asked Dick. Whitley shrugged his shoulders. I'm not looking for a wife, he said. But was there no ceremony of any form? Persisted Dick. Again, Jim shrugged his shoulders. It wasn't necessary. It was Dick's turn to be aggravated now. His hand played nervously on the handle of his revolver. But the other did not notice this. Why did you leave her so soon? I have business of importance at home, said Whitley with a sneer. Slowly, the man behind the table rose to his feet, his form trembling violently, his strong hands clenching and unclenching in their agitation. Slowly, he reached out and lifted the weapons of death from the table. Slowly, he raised them. The criminal sat as the fascinated, his face livid with fear. For the full minute, the revolvers covered the cowering victim, and suddenly Dick's hands fell. Jim Whitley, he said in a voice that was strangely quiet, if I were not a Christian, you could not live a moment. Now go. He followed him from the room and watched him down the stairs. Then returning, he locked the door again, and throwing himself on his bed, he wept as only a strong man can, with great shuddering sobs, until utterly exhausted, he fell into a stupor, where George Udell found him the next morning. Dick told his employer the whole story, and took the first train east. The same day, Whitley left the city.